Hi, this is John Kapalos. You're listening to Noel Fogelman, and he's reliving his youth in his great podcast, and I happen to be his guest. I hope you enjoy. And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman, and I had a chance to speak with John Kapalos. John's probably best known as Carla Janitor from The Breakfast Club. We get into that movie, obviously, and how he wasn't the first choice to play Carl. Uh, He also was in a couple of other John Hughes movies, Weird Science, Sixteen Candles. We get into his relationship with John Hughes a little bit. He also starred in one of my all-time favorite shows, Forever Night, playing Detective Skanky. We talk about why he wasn't in the final season. If you turn on the TV right now, you can probably see him in so many TV shows. He guest starred in pretty much every TV show known to man. He had a memorable run on Justified. He was on Psych. He was on Chuck. Played Barry, the sniffing accountant on Seinfeld, X-Files. You name it, he was on it. We get into his career, what he's doing now, and a little bit about his music. He's a musician as well, and he's... Set to release, hopefully, some CD album sometime in the near future. Here's my conversation with John. And helping me relive my youth today is John Kaplos. John, how are you today? I am excellent. I really appreciate... Good to be speaking with you. All right, thank you. I really appreciate this. Um, so, how did you become an actor? <laughs> well, um, I was in high school. I was in ninth grade, going into tenth grade. And I auditioned for the school play, and I got a part in Guys and Dolls. Not just a part, the lead of Nathan Detroit. So I um, got to do that. And all of a sudden, I thought, wow, this is fun. I um, got to get out of class. Um, I got to be in the school play, the focus of attention, and I could also do it. So I started taking acting classes next year in in, uh, in drama class. And uh, it sort of went from there. I went to university, and my third year of university, I decided I wanted to give professional acting a chance. So that's when I told my parents, and uh, it entered another realm after that. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, were your parents receptive to that? My dad was actually, uh, my mother was less receptive, a little bit more in shock. My father said, once the dust settled and he realized I really wanted to do it, he said, why don't you... Um, why don't you do it for the next year? And if you don't get a job, then you're going back to school. And that was my that was our bargain. So um, within six months, I got a job at Second City. So <laughs> it's pretty lucky. Yeah, that's not bad. Is that when you uh, like worked with John Candy? Yeah, well, actually, I was taking workshops in Toronto uh, at Second City, and I met John Candy, and he and I became friends. I wouldn't say, you know, he was, I was more enamored of him because he was John Candy, and he right. was really, really nice to me as a, as a workshop guy. And a um, few of us in the workshops got a little cheeky and asked, um, did a little uh, money, uh, uh, we, we collected some money and asked John to do some extra workshops with us, and we'd pay him. And he said, sure. So we found this space, and he did some comedy workshops with us outside of Second City. And uh, lo and behold, he wouldn't take our money. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, 
That's good. Now, did you find yourself more of, like, back then a dramatic actor or more comedic? <laughs> well, initially, uh, uh, I thought of myself as a dramatic actor, but then when I, you know, but what did I know? I had done school plays and university plays and had done one or two plays at, um, in sort of community theater, which is not really professional, but gives you a taste of uh, pro professional theater in a way. So um, I thought I fancied myself a bit of a dramatic actor. I never really didn't know what Second City was, and it played to one of my strengths, which was I uh, was sort of funny and um, had the ability to make, you know, make funny, to be funny. So that was a big part of my um, my sort of education. So yeah, I mean, not everybody could do Second City, but um, I found that I could, and uh, it was one of these things also because my dad had sort of put so much pressure on my getting a job. It was one of the few theaters that I knew that was actually hiring actors and paying them, you know? Yeah, and that kept, kept you out of university then, I guess, right? <laughs> That's right. Kept me back from going to college, university, whatever, and uh, saved my tuchus. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so then how did you get involved with uh, John Hughes? Well, I was in Chicago. I um, was in the touring company, and uh, I started to... Uh, I got an agent who represented me in Chicago, and... It was at that point that I had um, the opportunity to um, to audition for some movies, and um, one of the first films I got to audition for was Sixteen Candles. It was being shot in Chicago, and uh, that's where I met John Hughes, and that sort of changed the trajectory of my career in a certain way. Now, with uh, the Breakfast Club, uh, I believe Rick Moranis almost played the janitor, correct? Right. What happened was that I did the I did Sixteen Candles, and then uh, um, John said I'm doing this other film called The Breakfast Club, and usually you'd be perfect for the role of the janitor. So, flash ahead, maybe a year after doing Sixteen Candles, I was on the road. Actually, I was in New York uh, performing at the Village Gate with Second City. We were doing a show there um, for about five months, which is a uh, Village Gate was a uh, really cool club in the village that mostly a music venue but we were at Second City where we had a show going there and it was doing very very well this is 1984 and the name of the show is Orwell that ends well <laughs> and um, I'm doing the show there and I read the uh, trade papers in New York of the old Variety magazine saying that uh, they're shooting the Breakfast Club in Chicago and Rick Moranis has got the part of the janitor and I closed the uh, trade papers. I said, "Well, <laughs> so it goes. Such a, you know, so much for my getting the part and having a great part in the Breakfast Club." And literally the next day, I got a phone call saying that Rick Moranis and John had had a parting of the ways, and would I come to Chicago? So I said, "Yeah." So I, they flew me back to Chicago, and uh, where I still had an apartment, and uh, I worked on the Breakfast Club, which was a game changer for me. Yeah, no doubt. I was telling my wife that I was going to be speaking to you this morning, and as soon as I finished that, she immediately started quoting Carl. Now, what like makes this movie such like, a timeless classic? Well, I think in, in, in part, um, and this is what I've said before, and I'll say it again, and I really do believe it, because it just is, is that John captured the zeitgeist of Keen at that time, he was a unique writer in that he sort of 
spoke from a teen's perspective. He had it so emblazoned in his recent memory, you know, being in his, you know, not not being much older than the teen himself in his 20s and early 30s. But he also, um, he didn't talk down to teenagers. He wrote really from their point of view, and it was meant for them. It wasn't meant for adults. So that's why you get this sort of strange, you know, uh, vocabulary that, that arose and the fact that he sort of created, you know, dweeb and all these sort of... <laughs> sort of code, of teenage code at the time. He was a very, very, uh, he really understood human beha- teenage behavior. And there was kind of a behavior that he tapped into that really hadn't been hitherto really uh, explored in the films. I think the only really big teenage movie that um, before Breakfast Club, and there were a lot of good films that were aimed at teenagers, but really the first teenage movie that spoke with the voice of teenagers was maybe, let's say, something like The Breakfast Club. And before that, it was kind of Rebel Without a Cause, which was in the 50s. Yeah, and there really hasn't been, like, one since, you know, that really has spoken to a teenager. Uh, now, you had, like, a, a pretty big monologue that was cut out that was kind of, like, supposed to predict the future of all the characters. Do you remember it? No, yeah, I do. I, I um we shot uh, all this stuff where I told them where they're going to be basically today, you know, in their 40s and 50s. And, uh, you know, um, it was it was meant to be um, funny but also truthful. So, you know, Molly was going to be a mom. She was going to be a soccer mom. And, and Anthony Michael was going to be a lawyer. And big jag-off, I said, big heart attack. <laughs> and... Uh, um, Judd Nelson, I had him pegged to be in and out of jail, and uh, uh, Ali Sheedy, she was going to be sort of a, you know, kind of a art festival artist, you know, um, not really having made it, but sort of doing these cheesy art festivals. And and so, and, and Emilio Estevez, I forget exactly his character, but it's something like, you know, you're going to be a failed gym teacher or something, you know, <laughs> an athlete that never made it. So the, it was all about, you know, crushing their dreams and giving them a more realistic perspective on really what it, it is you're going to be. Right now you have dreams. So it was a bit of a dream-crushing reality moment. Um, and ultimately, the monologues came, became more about Carl and less about the uh, the film. So ultimately, they didn't really fit into the, uh, the rhythm of the movie. And the movie as we see it now sort of evolved from all the shooting that John did. I mean, John shot scads of stuff that didn't make it in the film or that he experimented with that maybe was going to make it. And then there was a lot of stuff that he shot that was experimental and, and improvisational that did make it in the movie. Now, he, he was known for that throughout his movies, correct? Yeah, he would shoot... Um, he would shoot, let's say, seven, eight, nine takes of the way it was written, and then... Um, shoot maybe as many uh, improvisationally if he trusted the actor. So he had a shooting ratio, which was pretty high, and a shooting ratio, especially in the days when you're shooting film, let's say 18, you know, if you shot 18 takes and used one, the shooting ratio would be, let's say, 18 to 1, which is pretty high. So he burned a lot of film. But he also worked on the principle that when you're set up and they're shooting, that um, the cheapest thing you've got at that moment is film. So, um, John, you know, 
trusted actors that could improvise, and uh, therefore that's the those are the people that he would let sort of run free like that. So lines like when I was a kid, I wanted to be John Lennon, or a lot of the stuff with uh, the with the Vern in the basement at, in the Breakfast Club was a lot of that was improvised, at least from my end. Right, and uh, Vern, that that role, I mean, he like he nailed that role. Absolutely. And now it's funny, as, as an adult now, you kind of re- relate to Richard a little bit more than the teens. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's kind of a sloppy reality to the guy. I mean, you know, he's kind of, um, you know, he's a strange, he's a, he's, a bit of a, he's a bit of a villain when you see the film as a teenager. He becomes more of a hapless uh, adult when you become an adult and you relate to it in a different way, you know. Still, he's a bit of a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much, and he, yeah, and then he he, he took that uh, Die Hard as well. He had a memorable role in that as well. I mean, uh, he was a wonderful actor, and um, he left. Uh, he died too soon, right? too young. Yeah, totally. Same as uh, John Hughes as well. Oh God, yeah, that was a um, sad tragedy. Yeah, are you surprised? Uh, I get one more relieved that they haven't remade any of his movies. spoke with uh, Dwight Schultz, you know, who was in the A-Team, and he, you know, had less than, you know, positive thing to say about the, the reboot of the movie, where he, he basically said that Bradley Cooper's character, Face, did everything where, that the four characters in the TV show did, so why make a movie? Baywatch and Chips, yeah, it's... Yeah, I think ironically, I mean, the people that are in those shows at the beginning um, do not see the irony of what they've become to another generation. Right. And to me, that's emblematic of the fact that he just doesn't get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good point. Now, like, I probably think the Fugitive movie was probably the one of the ones that actually, you know, succeeded over the uh, TV show. <laughs> um, it was it was a good movie, and I also think that it transcended the show because, in a way, it took the premise and expanded on it. Um, I mean, let's face it; a lot of these TV shows were thin to begin with, and 
you know, we're also remixed. I mean, if you want to go to the, a TV show like The Saint, which Roger Moore was in, it was remade as a movie, right? Right, I think with Val Kilmer. Yeah, but it was Val Kilmer, but I mean, it was originally it was George Saunders in the 1940s. I mean, The Saint is a franchise that's been around again and again, so Hollywood is, you know, redoes yeah. everything. <laughs> Can you do Sherlock Holmes, you know? Yeah, true. Another one. Um, you know, franchises, as they, you know, it, it, to me it's also, I'm pretty hard on my generation, but it, to me it's a reflection of how the baby boom is bereft of any new ideas. You know, when I started remaking things like Dragon and all that stuff, frankly, I just thought it, thought it was appalling. I still do. Yeah, nah, I know. How many times can you see, you know, the origin story of Spider-Man or Batman? It's... It, uh, it, it, to me, I mean, you know, I'm, I just... The comic book thing is a huge head scratch, but it's, it's about money. Yeah, always. Huh. And lots of it. Yeah. Now, one of my favorite roles of yours was in Forever Night. I absolutely love that show. I think it's, you know, called Classic. Uh, were you actually surprised that you were able to, like be in that show after, like, the Nick Knight TV movie? Well, I mean, it was a compliment in a way to me that they, they wanted to keep me and move on with it. Um, uh, I created Skanky in a way, and, and uh, they let me take him to the next level. It was a bit like, you know, repeating a year of high school because I reshot the same pilot, uh, the one I did with Rick Springfield, and I did it with uh, Garrett Wynn Davies and a whole different group of people up in Canada. Um, you know, again, there's a show that sort of <laughs> foresaw a lot of other shows like Buffy and True Blood and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, again, the vampire franchise is as old as vampire. Right. <laughs> but I can't say that, you know, oh, God, we had an original thing that was taken. Um, you know, we had a twist on it, which I thought was interesting. Uh, it was a fun show to work on. I got to do a lot of improvisation, and I also got to create my character. And uh, at the same time, piss off a lot of people at CBS. Right. <laughs> now, you wrote and directed in that show as well, correct? Yeah, I wrote an episode uh, called The Code, and I directed an episode called uh, More Permanent Hell. So that was a good opportunity for me. Yeah. So how did you find out that they were going to kill off your character? How, how did you find out that they were going to kill your character? James Perriott basically took me to lunch. The show was moving to A&E from CBS. And uh, the mandate was that they bring in a new partner for Nick, a younger woman that he could possibly have a love interest with. And the idea was that they were going to put me in the uh, captain's chair and where I would both go, Cagney, Lacey, get in here, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and get paid less and get less billing and work less. And um, James made that pitch to me, and I said, well, basically, you're asking me to leave the show. He said, well, not really. I mean, but, you know, it's a reduced position. I said, well, thanks, but uh, I think I'm going to pass on that. And uh, that's when they decided to obliterate my character in a plane crash so yeah. I could never have a chance of coming back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also told him very calmly and, and, and very... I said, I think the show's going to suffer. I think you're making a mistake. And I don't think the fans, despite the fact that fans have no pull or sway to any TV show in history, right. uh, and people never make any decisions according to the fans, which I think in some ways is a little bit of a disservice to them, but that's another story. But I said, I don't think the fans 
fans are going to like it, and I was right. Yeah, you definitely were. The first two seasons of that show were far superior than the last, but, you know, what do fans and know, the, correct? The woman that they got to play next partner was particularly, you know, agile in so far as doing the things that they needed to do um, and all that sort of stuff, but, you know, full history. Yeah. Now, you've like, guest starred in, like, a ton of TV shows. You can probably play, like, Six Degrees of John Capolo's. <laughs> do you like enjoy like guest starring and playing different roles from like you know week to week or you know from show to show? Well, you know, um, part of the job as a, a journeyman actor is doing that. I didn't really get any uh, action on any other shows in terms of being a regular, so it sort of uh, evolved into the fact that you know our TV mostly was a place for me to make a living. So whether it was Murder She Wrote or um, you know Matlock or or whatever the hell, you know, you just you just go from show to show doing this. And um, if that's the way it's going to be, you know, the movie business changed and evolved when I started doing movies in the 70s, I'm sorry, in the 80s, uh, in the, you know, like around 1982, 83, 84, the movie budgets were like 10, 15 million, 20 million dollars, 5, 10, 15, 20, and those were big budget movies. And then there'd be, you know, seven or eight parts in it that were really good from one to seven in the cast list. And then they start doing 150, 200, 250 million dollar movies. Well, basically they're just writing around two or three leads and everybody else, you know, is got smaller sort of parts that sort of are like, if you're a bad guy, it's you're indicative of your character is just, you know, sort of one note bad guy. If you're, if you, if you come in with a piece of information, you're one note piece of information person. So the movies did not um, offer as much of a range of roles, you know, so you, you take what's out there. And, uh, yeah, so I ended up becoming the king of the hour TV thing. Right, yeah, so every time I watched the show and I saw your name in the guest starting credits, I knew it was going to be a memorable role. You know, the one in uh, Justified was great. You know, that was also good. Even, like, a show like Psych, so... You definitely, you know, expand, like, your, you know, acting range from more of, like, a comedic show to a more dramatic show. Yeah, and the, the fact is that, you know, I can do drama. Um, so a lot of actors that do comedy sometimes can't do drama and vice versa. I mean, you know, a lot of actors that do drama, I mean, comedy cannot do drama. I mean, you know, there are, of course, many exceptions. But, um... I can also play blue collar and white collar, which is another way of going. So that gave me a bit of a room to move uh, as an actor. And also I sort of did not want to be typed. So, but you know, ultimately there is a type of character I play can be named sleazy or marginal. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking hate that type. Description, but it always seems to be, you know, people lump. Right, right. You know. The old character actor, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's a little bit facile, but, you know. Yeah. Now, yeah, now moving on, like, when did you get involved in music? Well, honestly, since I was a kid, I've been playing music. I um, was playing music before I became an actor. And when I was a teenager, I seriously thought of becoming a professional musician. Um, but acting sort of became um, 
a better shot for me and also something that I wanted to do more. Um, but, uh, I mean, I did music in Second City, I did music, but when I sort of got a bit older, I thought, shit, I want to get around to do this. So I recorded an album in the, in the um, God, in the, uh, in the 90s called Sit the Karaoke Kid. Um, and then I did an album all in garage band called May. And now I've got a new album called Two Hip for the Room, which I've been delaying releasing for the last year and a half because I'm a one-man record company and I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to, you know, release it and, and do some performing. But So that's been my focus on that. And I love writing music. You know. Playing music sort of an adjunct uh, creative aspect to my life. Yeah. Is any of your music available now to buy? Um, actually, I've taken it all down off of iTunes, and I'm going to be re-releasing everything later this year. So at the moment, no. Okay. <laughs> but I'm, I've got my albums I'm going to be re-releasing, and I'm figuring out different streaming platforms and things like that. I, I had it out there, and then I pulled it off because um, of, of sort of the whole, you know, um, iTunes model, and everything got a bit bewildering, but, so I'm trying to figure out exactly where I wanted to have it and where I want to have it. And, so it'll be available come September. Oh, great. L- look forward to hearing that. Now, what's uh, what's some of the next couple roles that you're working on? Um, I just finished a film with Robert Schwartzman, um, who is Jonathan Schwartzman's brother, and is uh, it's called um, The Unicorn. And I play a parent with uh, Beverly D'Angelo, plays my wife. And um, our kids are... Uh, one of our daughters is married and, and, and about to have a child, and the other daughter, who is the focus of the movie, is uh, is breaking up with her boyfriend, and uh, we thought they were getting together. And it's it's basically about um, relationships and how people sort of spice up their relationships by bringing a third person into them. It's a very funny comedy. Did another film called... Um, John, come on, what's the name mm-hmm. of it now? Um, 22 Chaser that's coming out, I think, this fall, where I play a, it's a film we shot up in Toronto with one of the guys from, um, what's the name of the movie, uh, the TV show that just got canceled on Netflix, um, something 8. Um, oh, uh, Sense8? Sense8, right. One of the actors from Sense8. Um, and uh, it's about um, a guy who works in the tow truck towing business. And I'm the guy that runs the telling business. It's a really good movie, 22 Chaser. And and I did a small part in a Guillermo del Toro movie called The Shape of Water, um, which is coming out, I think, this summer with Sally Hawkins and uh, Michael Shannon. And uh, that's this small part, but that was working with a master. And uh, Guillermo del Toro is just an incredible director. How is... Dave Fellini or, you know, just a real uh, auteur. How was working with Michael Shannon? He always, like every role he is in, he always seems so serious. He is very serious, and uh, I didn't really do much with him. My part was with Sally, but he's intense and serious, and boy, is he uh, uh, well thought of. He pops off the screen. He's a yeah. good actor. Yeah, he, he really is. Uh, John, thanks for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it. I look forward to your music, your music coming out, and your movies, and uh, I'll watch Forever Night. Forever, pretty much. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate the time. A special thanks to John for joining me today. 
Go on Twitter right now. Go follow John at John Capilos. While you're there, you can also follow me at the person all one nine. Close Twitter. Go on Facebook. You can like the page Reliving My Youth. Go see John Capilos in The Shape of Water when it comes out in the fall. I saw the trailer. It looks fantastic. Be on the lookout for 22 Chaser when that comes out as well. Go turn on your TV right now because I'm sure you'll find him in some role. And I'm sure he's being great in it. And thanks again for helping me relive my youth.